cops are representative of a regime increasingly invested in making college education a way of preserving an increasingly unequal society. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. I feel like I've officially lost the thread of what's going on right now. You know, like, I feel like it's time to admit that there is a point past which feminism can no longer help us. <laughs> yeah, gift of, gift of feminism or not, we're very confused about what's going on right now. There's a lot, we're, we're tracking multiple storylines. We're basically like Nicole Kidman and any of those shows she does for HBO and that we're just bewildered by what's happening to us and like, we can no longer emote Mm -hmm. from between our nose and our hairline. We just kind of do this wide-eyed stare. I mean, I would compare us to Nicole Kidman in many ways. I mean, including our agelessness and luster. But that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. What what other Nicole Kidman each... Like, I'm thinking of True Little Lies, but what other Kidman references are you making? Oh, The Undoing? Oh. Sundays on HBO? I feel like that's more your wheelhouse. Yeah, something I, I very much do not recommend our listeners check out because it's baffling and <laughs> deeply upsetting. I, you know, if we're shouting out to listeners and former guests, I do have to credit Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs, if you're wrong about, with inspiring me to turn on season four of The Crown last night, which best I can tell from Twitter is what most of my Twitter feed was doing last night for the exact same reason. So I, I got sucked in. And I have to say that without their commentary on the Charles Diana relationship I think those scenes in the crown are frankly unwatchable it's like why do I care about these people they're so dull but if you know everything that Sarah and Michael have laid out and you're wrong about in their epic five-hour production of the Diana story it really sings I mean and you say this and you hate the royal family so you know that's a very special endorsement to get oh, you to yeah. care big time I was doing a little light Wikipedia-ing in tandem with watching The Crown, and I came across a really entertaining anecdote in which I think it was Lord Mountbatten tried during a meeting with Stalin to impress Stalin by being like, hey, you know who I know really well is the outgoing Russian imperialist family, like close family of mine, and like Stalin was not impressed, and apparently everybody in the room was like, dude, that was super awkward to bring that up. Anyway, I feel like that's a pretty good tone check for where, where the British royal family is in like global relevance yeah. was this lewis was this uh, Dickie? i think so the one who was the uncle of king what's his face i mean i don't know i the one who the, the one who something 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 in the first episode of the new season yep that crown. one that guy yeah yeah well i mean the one who was eventually blown up by the ira in a boat that guy okay so or we just go full spoiler sure sure i mean i mean Wikipedia it's it's, a, it's history's spoiler adrian <laughs> Yeah, Diana does not make it. Sorry. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, and I also think it's a bit of a spoiler just to tell the Stalin story of how Lord Mountbatten tried to impress Stalin. You know, that seems to foreshadow getting blown up by Irish revolutionaries somehow. Yeah, yeah. All of this, of course, being a perfect segue <laughs> to talk about our episode for today. Our most aristocratic yet. <laughs> British royal family is nothing but relevant to the conversation you're about to hear between us and uh, an old friend of mine, Professor Nick Mitchell of the University of California system. You know, little little bit of controversy. Stanford and the UC system, sometimes there's a little bit of tension there, but we're, we're bridge builders here at the Feminist Presence. Yes, yes. We have many disagreements, among them that the University of California system accepts science and Stanford apparently <laughs> officially no longer does. It's a great day to ask Adrian about how he feels about Stanford. It's just been a great week in Stanford news. Nobody mentioned the Hoover Institution. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, setting all of those grievances aside just for the moment, I mean, not really even setting them aside so much as segueing no, no. them into discussion with our guest. What did we what did we talk to Nick about? I feel like you got to be a special kind of fly on the wall for this conversation. I did. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I thought it was really far ranging and it was about the university as less an institution and more like a, a, a biotope, right? Like more as like a, like what, what a campus does to a surrounding area and like how it structures labor, how it makes race visible and invisible, 
how it allows people to narrate their own lives or or deprive certain people of the ability to narrate their own lives, right? Sort of town and gown relations. But I think we found a lot more in that than we initially thought we might. I mean, the, the main thing I learned is that you and he seem to have co-starred in what I'm picturing as a sitcom, uh, where you all ran a, a, a dive bar together. I think it's more of a dramedy, but yeah. Okay, sure, sure. Um, yeah. But I think we moved from It's Always Sunny in Morningside Heights uh, very quickly to, to discussions about, yeah, what does it mean to work during college? What, does, what, what are the, the invisible divides that labor sort of creates across campus? And what is the narrative function of the college campus in our lives? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it, I think it was a conversation about all of those things thematically, and you just stated that really eloquently. I would also say that I would characterize it as a conversation in some ways about origin stories, which is always like a topic that interests me as as it relates to thinkers I admire, of whom Nick is absolutely one and has been one for a very long time. But like Nick and my origin stories kind of converged when we were undergrads at Columbia and even more so when we worked at the same dive bar as Adrian was uh, referring to. And for me, it was an incredibly fun, not only trip down memory lane in just sort of the back in the day way, but also like a really important, I think, opportunity for me to process sort of who all these actors are in the service economy and what what do those roles signify and how do they connect with the ways that you are treated and how do those modes of treatment differ across different identity categories. Um, those were all mm, dramas in the theater of the bar, as I, re- as I remember it, and... It was really fun to catch up with Nick about all of this gossipy shared history. Yeah, and I, I had fun, as you say, being a fly on the wall. It kind of confirmed for me, I have never worked at a bar as I volunteer in the interview. I went to school in a dry county, so our campus jobs were incredibly dry. Such a bummer for you. None of them, none of them involved the ability to dispense Jose Cuervo. <laughs> but it confirmed for me what I always suspected, which is that every bar I've ever walked into is just rife with Freudian psychodrama. So much. I'll I'll leave our listeners with just one memory of 1020, and then I have to scamper off to class. But I remember one of the biggest sort of vectors of ally building I had in the bar. One of them was obviously free liquor. Um, That was maybe the obvious one. But a less obvious one that really only came into play for people who I really, really liked and who had treated me really, really well was there was a secret bathroom at 1020. And uh, I was not going to let just anybody learn about that bathroom. You know, if you had ever been an asshole to me, then you were not getting that bathroom and especially not in your moment of need. But there were some people that I let into the secret bathroom. It was a terrible bathroom. I mean, it was a toilet at the back of a supply closet. But, you know, when when the line is 10 deep and your moment of need has arrived, sometimes you're really happy to see that supply closet. I'm now picturing the uh, the bathroom from Trainspotting, the worst bathroom in Scotland. There was a lot about that bar that would be, I mean, not as heroin forward, but like there was a lot of that bar that would be very comparable to Trainspotting. And I constantly associated, it had like a um, screen in the background where they would play movies and I I feel like Pulp Fiction was p- playing like 95% of the time that I was there so that was a real Boondock Saints the other 10% definitely oh god we're dating ourselves so much <laughs> um we're so old anyway early 2000s it's a trip it was a tough time <laughs> it was a tough time we also talked about to Nick about his involvement in the Cops Off Campus movement, which is really important, and he can share a lot more information about that. And that is also definitely connected to these college bar conversations in some expected and unexpected ways. So we are resuming our typical Wednesday schedule for you now that we are quote-unquote scare quotes through the election. We are through the part that we anticipated of the election, or one of the parts that we anticipated about the election, we are not quite through the attempted coup. Nonetheless, feminism persists, and we have some conversations coming up with Sister Roma. We have a wonderful conversation coming up with the writer Liz Lenz, and I can't really talk about our season finale. It's just, like, it's too tender. We have a very special season finale guest. It is so special that I'm not even on it. I have not heard it yet. When we get there, we'll talk about the reasons why. As uh, Dr. Frankenfurter says, shivering with Anne Tissa patient. Adrian loves to choose the references that make us look young and fresh-faced. Anyway, without further ado, this is Adrian and I talking to the wonderful, the doctoral, the professorial Nick Mitchell. 
Enjoy. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I have lots of things to talk about, but Adrian was really excited about a question that he had to ask you. One of your pieces that that hit me at the right moment, I think, was mm. the one about our summertime selves. Oh yeah, right where where you talk about the way that the academic workplace becoming kind of increasingly virtual over the summer that leads to this very strange economy of labor. That came out what, like last October, like a month before the first person in Wuhan got diagnosed with COVID. And basically like four months before, that basically became all our year always. Right. I reread it and I was like, this is just a sheer trigger. Our summer selves are now, that's us. Oh my God. Yeah, I think I, I reflected on it like maybe two two months in and I'm like, I think I said summertime selves have become quarantine qualities. Yeah. And yeah, I could not have anticipated like that it would capture something that ended up being relevant. One of the things I wanted to catch in that piece was just like, oh, why is it that there's so much academic drama that starts popping off in the summer? Like, why is there a new a new controversy that ends up popping off in the summer? And it was largely in response to the way that I saw a lot of my colleagues, I suppose, um, responding to the the Avital Ronell stuff. But there, mm-hmm. there have been other things. I think that you know the the Stephen Salida case would count as a summertime level piece of of academic drama and it's like these are about really different type type things but the kinds of subjectivity and the way that they give occasion both to this convergence of analysis on one hand and like uh, what i call drama genesis like the hybrid world of academic analysis uh a little like sprinkling of outrage and then informal gossip culture gets fed and gets almost like it goes viral like now that we do so much work on social media and so trying to figure out how to like how do you build an analytic frame about that kind of stuff i'm not entirely sure have we had any big covid era social media drama other than jessica krug oh oh my god oh yeah (laughs) i I was reaching and then i'm like oh yeah there there is there there's that 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 is that one one finger and then you found (laughs) i mean other than this huge humdinger there's really nothing you know no it's been Um, totally chill (laughs) wait so nick just to back it up a little bit for the lay people in the audience who maybe don't read the new inquiry every day. Can you give like a quick lay person definition of what you see as the summertime self and like how it bears resonance, maybe even beyond academia? Yeah. I mean, what I was trying to get at, at that piece is that what's weird about academia is that for most academic instructional workers, the summer, summer is both really, really central and at the same time, it's not the time we get paid for. So for many people, summer is this really precarious time, especially increasing because academia is increasingly reliant on adjunct, casualized, part-time kind of piece labor that's very poorly paid because it's increasingly reliant on graduate student labor. The summer is this gap where there's all this uncertainty about when do I get my next paycheck? Um, how, how am I going to make my living? And then even to people who have quote-unquote made it on the tenure stream, there's this, we do a lot of work and then all of a sudden during the summer, we're supposed to catch up. Like you're supposed to write all the things that you haven't written. And um, the summer is just flush with guilt. And so the summer, it's like this necessary gap because uh, in many ways, like academic work is, is, is so intense that it needs some sort of reprieve. We need the summer 
but it's also the place where I end up writing pieces like that one that I wrote, um, which are the things that I use to go for, for promotion. So my unpaid work produces my paid work and not not the other way around. One of the really interesting things about the, the article is that it points out that there's like in the summer that one way, one kind of invisible labor disappears, namely service work that we all do and yet don't get paid for. And then it becomes this like, these articles that are just kind of supposed to magically appear because like, you know, like, like how was your summer? And you know, like how, how many articles did you finish? Right. And there's this, it's, it's interesting that you, you're like, you point to the way that like, these are both kind of labor that the university never ex acknowledges exists, right? You're not remunerated for them. You can get prestige for them or people are like really grateful or whatever, but like there is an element here of it's like, it's not located anywhere. It's like, no one can tell you when it's really happening. Exactly. And so th th there's this weird thing where it's like, okay, everyone gets excited. At least the idea is like, oh, now that I can, I, I'm done with all the bullshit work. Uh, now that I don't have to keep on ser serving the people, uh, I can do the work that really defines my passion. And passion defining work is also career defining work. But there's this idea that what comes out in the summer is the, the real self, even while at the same time, the summer is the with regard to labor, it's the disavowed self. And that, that's happening at the same time. They're, they're informing each other. And also the, the summertime, like you, you don't belong to your university in the same way because like at least you're not going to campus when we're in not non-plague uh, time. You're, you're not actually going to campus. And so you may have an academic identity, but your academic identity is about being connected to other academics in different ways. And social media increasingly produces ac academic identity in this kind of virtual space of the summer in a way that it doesn't elsewhere. It's, it's kind of disembedded from particular educational institutions. And as you point out in the article, it's the cleavage between what happens on campus and what happens off in the social media age also gets a lot narrower in the sense that, well, what you do in the summer, what, you, what your summertime self does may not get you paid at the university, may get you fired from the university. So you really have all the all the disadvantages of this, but not the advantages. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And the un universities entirely rely for their prestige economies on this gap, which is unpaid. And there are so many histories of feminist analysis that talk about the centrality of unpaid labor to the production of everything that we call labor. And I, I think that there's part of that structure in, in, in this, and especially the, the, the way that service work and even teaching work is implicitly associated with the feminine such that the, the, the real self, the distinguished self in the summer can come out. But the way that it's organized is fascinating fascinating and bizarre and because people imagine that their real selves are supposed to come out in the summer it also means that there's a lot of frustration like time for writing also means time for writer's block um, time for writing means encountering failure in, uh, in, in a way that is almost guaranteed. And I think summer also becomes one of those moments where we act in a, I would say, like a, a little bit of a compensatory way. And I think there's a little bit of a shadow of that in the flavor of some of the, the summertime controversies that we see. It's not that they're not about legitimate things, but it's that summer's a time when we kind of feel like ourselves are on trial. Yeah. And so they get contested in new kinds of ways. I was really surprised at how little work I'd seen on academic summers. And I started trying to look for books like, what the hell is the history of the academic summer? And so as someone who writes about universities, I was I was a little bit shocked that this gap in the structure of the year is also a gap in scholarship itself. That's fascinating. Well, and as you say, that resonates outward in how labor is gendered, right? Like I'm thinking of what you're saying, not only from my perspective as a teacher, but also from my perspective as a parent, you know, dealing with filling three months of like, well, you know, there's no childcare for anybody right now under any circumstances. So that's a special situation that we're in, but under more normal circumstances, 
every year this three month gap just shows up and there's no extra subsidies for childcare and everybody's scrambling. And it's like, we're, we're still basing our labor assumptions on these like incredibly outdated premises in ways that echo outward across many kinds of lived labor experiences. Exactly. And it's, it's not surprising. Like there's a, a little bit of a, a collective myth that the reason that students get summers off has to do with the agricultural calendar, the idea that we needed those summers in order to get time off for people to prepare for harvests. And recent scholarship has just shown that, that it's a farce. The structure of the summer has to do with the rise of the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie's demand for time off in the academic calendar so they can leave cities like New York and go to summer houses and not have to deal with the heat <laughs> and the smell and the experience of the cities that they need need at the same time to live their extractive lifestyles. It's so fascinating that the agrarian calendar gets associated with actually the bourgeoisie ex expressing their own desires. Well, and of course, summer becomes the place where all of the differences amongst our students that colleges, when they work well, can go some way towards mitigating and leveling all come back out, right? Like whether the student had to bag at a grocery store versus having an amazing unpaid internship, right? Like all the stuff that like, I guess what we're saying is we hate summer, right? It's like. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of time off. The idea of time off is not what summer is. Right. I love the example of the unpaid internship because summer becomes that moment for the accumulation of skills, the accumulation of relationships that one gets to cash down in the future in order to produce another self as distinct. Whereas, you know, other folks, it may be trying to actually make money to make ends meet, to like take care of their families. And so, even in, in universities where the, the idea is that you, you have these places that destroy class distinctions, even though we know that's not part of the lived reality of universities at all, uh, summer is one of those places where those differences, how people live their summers, comes into, into deep relief. Right, right. I could not possibly have scripted if I tried a better transition to one of the things that I'm most excited to talk to you about under the aegis of the service economy, which oh, is that you and I now share a profession in an academy in like that side of the service sector, but you and I also have some other experience within the service center, right? Absolutely. So I would love to hear, you know, I certainly have my impressions, but I would love to hear in your words, the back in the day buffet of how service has previously brought us together. Yeah, so, okay. I'm wondering if you have metabolized these years in ways that I, I haven't. I was so excited about the, the opportunity to talk about this because, yeah, like I don't share that time in common and that perspective on that time. So, okay, Laura and I went to college. We went to college at the same time, but we also worked at the same bar. And it was a very particular bar. Um, it was... <laughs> It was always introduced to me as the least bro-y, um, the most hip of the bars that were proximate to Columbia. The bar that the folks who listened to indie rock and the punks weren't really embarrassed at being seen at, I guess. It's like the artsy, yeah. cool grad student hangout. Yeah. I'm, I'm picturing it now and I'm kind of hating it, but only like a bit. You don't even I have mean, to picture it because we could, sh we could show you a highlight reel of every single movie it's ever been in, right up to Motherless Brooklyn, which I just That's saw like so two true. weeks Oh ago it shows up all the time the bar is called 1020 it's on 110th in amsterdam nobody's trying to be cagey here oh i've been there. um or if nick is we can edit that out oh, later no. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me okay so nick we're gonna let adrian be our spectator who doesn't know anything here but like tell <laughs> tell me where you were in the constellation of the bar okay so i think my first day at 1020 was September 20th, 2001. I was 18. It was my second year. My beginning to work at 1020 was right on the heels of September 11th, just over a week after. And I think it must have been on my second or third night in the bar. I think that the NYPD was hurting for funding. And so they had a quick raid on the bar. Like the bartender got a ticket. I was working the door. So I'm an 18 year old sophomore at Columbia who had been looking for a job, thought it'd be cool to work in a bar, really needed money. And also I'm not old enough to drink. And now I am just certain that I have fucked 
things up beyond repair because the bar got raided. Uh, like it was probably my first or second night <laughs> working in, in the bar. Um, and somehow it ended up not being a, a problem. It was quite an introduction to life working at a bar because the, the, the relationship to the police was almost something that they expected. They weren't happy to have been raided, but it was part of the structure of working in the bar, just like- Part of the economy. Exactly. It was a real introduction to a different way of being in New York. I worked at 1020 for four years. I worked the door and then I worked as a bar back for the first three. And then I became a bartender for the last one and a half years there. It more than anything, except for working at the radio station, really defined my time at Columbia. And I spent probably more time there than anywhere else. We had a very, um, the euphemism is singular boss who lived in an apartment above the bar and he... Please describe him, Nick. Please, please describe him. Okay. So he seemed to never not have beige shorts on, whether it was two degrees outdoor and a foot of snow. He had a, like, I wouldn't call it a mane because mane suggests majestic. Um, but he had a tangle of brown hair that if it were straight, it would be like well past his ass. I don't know if he ever cut it, but it was just there. Um, he had the dictionary definition of a pot belly and like it was like the belly of someone who i once heard it described as the belly of someone who was 38 months pregnant it, <laughs> i mean he his his presence was so distinct and he was watching at every moment um either he was in the bar at at the corner of the bar surveying everything or he was watching through his video camera in his apartment and y yeah like if you if you if he caught you half stepping if he caught you misstepping if he caught you doing something that he didn't like you would get a call on the phone and you would get reprimanded with the quickness also if he wanted a pack of cool milds he would call down the phone and someone would send you as bartender or as bar back to the corner store to get him a pack of cool milds take him up to his apartment so what I'm remembering, I, I actually, timeline-wise, only overlapped with you for a little bit because I was there for three years from 2005 to 2008, when I, mm -hmm. starting when I was a junior at Columbia through the time I was in grad school at Columbia, when I, you know, achieved my dream of becoming one of the cool artsy grad students who used to hang out at 1020. And like you say, it, there was a period of my life where it was like extremely normal to spend five, six nights a week at the bar, right. sometimes working, sometimes hanging out with friends who are working, sometimes just there. You asked if I've metabolized this experience in different ways, and I don't know if I have, but one of the ways that I've metabolized it is thinking a lot about the surveillance that you just mentioned and how the surveillance informed everybody's behavior, but also just thinking a lot about the intersectional valences of how these race and class and gender performances enacted themselves in the bar. And, and when I look back at myself, you know, I was let's see, between the ages of 21 and 23, 21 to 24, maybe when I worked there. So I was like a young, thin, blonde, white girl. And what I had been told about working as a bartender in New York City was literally just my friend, Sarah, who you also know, coming up to me and uh -huh. saying, you're hot, you could be a bartender. <laughs> and that was it. Like, that was the whole thing. It was like, that is the main qualification. Everybody understands that this is the currency. Like, everybody will understand if I come and vouch for you at this bar. And then that's what she did. And it wasn't until much later, I'm embarrassed at how much later it took me, but like, it wasn't until much later that I kind of realized what I symbolized in this economy, you know, uh -huh. like what role was I playing, right? Right, right? And I, the most important part of what I symbolized was I was where money was exchanging hands, right? Like I was the purveyor of the product and I was the person who collected the money for that product. So in essence, I became the representative for the money in the bar, you know? And so like you have this young, white, thin body representing the money, right? Then orbiting around the blonde white girl who, who represents the money, then who do we have, Nick? 
<laughs> then, then who else is in the bar? It's a great chain of being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but like, really, we had a whole bunch of mostly black and brown, mostly large bodies and mask coated bouncers and bar bags. Exactly. Whose job was to protect me slash the money. Right. Yeah. And I feel like the relational product of this was I remember feeling an intense and like cherished amount of solidarity right. with all of my compatriots in this fight. But I don't think I was as aware as I should have been until later about how problematic those performances were, you yeah. know, and like how we were being forced into solidarity by forces way, way beyond our control and how that informed right. solidarity, too. Yeah. And also the structure of working in a bar, especially with the bar back. And so, like, you know, with the bar back, it's like you're in a trickle down economy. So you get like 35 bucks a night and then you get tipped by the bartenders who give you a share of their tips. And so, so much of, of that hierarchy just gets literalized in the structure of work. I felt so odd about it also just because I was able to navigate it. I did not like working the door. I started that job working the door because I am six foot seven. I was probably like 270 pounds and I looked like a defensive end. And I was meek as hell. I was soft, I was shy. I was absolutely studying women's and gender studies and- Nick was a legend for this, people need to know. It was very odd. I mean, I liked the contrast, but I also, I'm like, I don't know how convincingly I can inhabit this role. But what became interesting was once I, I graduated somehow to bartender, I couldn't make any sense of myself. First of all, like my body didn't belong behind that bar. I could, I could barely move. Uh, second of all, I became the internal beacon of the gaze of surveillance. Like no one could even be seen past me. So if the boss had any problem with anything, it was going to be directed at me. Third, I ended up getting in confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. I got like I got dreadlocks pulled out by some drunk white dude who who was a patron at the bar my second year. It was very intense. I will not name this man, but I know him. He graduated from Milton Academy. Yes, it was it was bad. There was some real precarity. There was some real, there were a few nights where I narrowly, narrowly averted getting jumped by, by you know, packs of pri privileged Columbia white guys who didn't want to leave the bar at 3.50 in the morning. And so like, it, it was a, a fascinating distribution <laughs> of like precarity. And also like, because I was who I was, some people recognize me, but also like I, I could have been a Columbia student or I could have not not been a Columbia student. I could have been like some platonic ideal of a doorman or I could have been the guy that was taking feminist texts too um, with you at the same time. So, so I, I felt like I was living multiple existences at once. And it was it was a fascinating moment for developing a, an identity around work, because as you said, the solidarities were there. And also, my God, I felt at the time, I, didn't, I don't even know how to make sense of this workplace. Like, as you're talking, I was remembering getting in those tense situations, too, where, where, like, you know, your fight or flight instinct starts to kick up. You know that the situation is turning. But the difference between the position you were in and the position I was in is I knew that if anybody, like, truly tried to step to me, Nick and George and Tim were going to be on them so fast, right? And you didn't share that reassurance, right? Like, you were both the point of sale and the backup created for that point right. of sale. And that's like a very precarious, uncomfortable position. You, you already partially answered part of what my next question was, but one thing I'd really be interested to hear your thoughts in mm -hmm. is how did you feel perceived or treated by your classmates when you were in that service labor context? Because I definitely had yeah. some memories and feelings. I mean, like, I think that by the end, I had I had a little bit of a reputation um, just because working at that bar with its extremely lax employee drinking policy. I don't know how they made money. To be perfectly honest, I, I, I have no idea how they ran a profit because we were drinking all the time. Like, 
that, that that's how I gained a taste for Jameson. Um, anyway, I also um, drank for free for years at 1020 just by being after. friends with a couple of y'all, like way before I even worked there. Like yeah, I haven't paid for right. drinks at 1020 since ever. You know, <laughs> it's so, where's it's, the profit margin? <laughs> so, so just just uh, for if in case there are any undergraduates listening, we should we should probably emphasize that this is what the corner of 110th and Amsterdam. One tenth in Amsterdam. Get you Jameson there if you or if you're not old enough to drink. They probably still have have the old creaky barber's chairs where the, the bouncer sits. So give the bar staff a shout out for us. Um, I I think that on one hand it it, it was seen as a a, a cool distinct job. Um, at the same time, I think that the the same problem making sense of myself. It seemed to me like my classmates had struggled to make sense of me because it didn't seem like I belonged. And I think that there, there were some practical ways like me showing up uh, as a result of that job also made me feel like I didn't belong. So for example, you know, I was working 30 hours a week as an undergraduate. I would work on Tuesday nights until 4 a.m. I would go, uh, I'd go to my friend Anna's house and study and wake up write a reading response at nine in the morning and go to Gayatri Spivak's class at 10 a.m., her feminist theory through feminist fic fiction class. And like, I'm barely awake. And so like literally, I, like, I, I didn't feel like I, I belonged in class because that, that, that combination of really working, working to get by, working for, for a living and going to school did, didn't make sense schedule wise. So yeah, like, I don't know if you, you had a sense of, of what the perception was, was like of me from other contexts. So I think the perception that I heard was just that you were a gentle giant, you know, and I, and I feel like that perception is probably what I was hearing interior, you know, like that's probably from bar college colleagues, not bar patrons, because yeah. um, I can't really see through their eyes. But what I remember of my own positionality there mm -hmm. is also that there was a class of, of Columbia students who would hang out there, both undergrads and grad students. Then there was also kind of a class of neighborhood locals, right? And there were people who were Columbia alums who had been there for a while, or people who had just lived in Morningside Heights or Harlem for a while. And by and large, that group skewed incredibly well-read and smart and interesting and like made for a lot of great conversation. A lot of Marxists there too. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> but I remember having, you know, sort of passing bartending conversations with both people who, you know, I guessed on perception were Columbia students and people who I perceived as locals. And I remember often we would come to a juncture in conversation where they would, you know, after I asked the first 10 questions, trying to like, you know, get money out of them, they would finally ask me a question. And it usually be something like, what do you do when you're not here? You know, and I would say, I'm a Columbia student. And the condescending astonishment just became like a hallmark of my time there, that you know, just like, oh, wow, really? Your kid, really? And, and it would just, it, yeah, I condescending astonishment. So that is like a, a marker of like oh, my sense so memories funny. there. Yeah. I, so I, I think part of the thing about me is like, I attract the gaze. <laughs> so um, like, People saw me on campus a lot, <laughs> and like I don't know if they thought I belonged there. Or well, what. that's so funny. You said G A Z E, and I oh, heard no, G A Y S, like, I mean, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll vouch for that." No, yeah. but, absolutely. Um, but <laughs> I do think that I, I I was seen, and so like either people thought that I was spending a whole lot of time at Columbia, and like maybe they thought I was I was doing drugs, which I may may or may not have been. Um, and but I, like I think on the, on the flip side, um, I. Like I think I was associated with the campus. It was it, like I was around. So do you do you think that I'm thinking back to our our summertime selves and the question of extraterritoriality here? Was it easier to do that kind of job by? The, I mean, it's really it's like stones throw away from campus, but it's not campus, right? Versus an actual campus job. I feel like that's another place where class divisions sort of open up differently depending on whether you are in a dining hall or in a bar. Or my my mistaken. This was definitely have been the case where I went to school, but uh, maybe that wasn't true for Columbia? I mean, I think that there are a lot of different ways of, of parsing that. P partly, I think, because I did not 
particularly like any of the work-study jobs <laughs> that, that were available to me on campus. And I think that that's one of the places where, where working students end up a lot. I really wanted to have something that would have continuity because I didn't want to go home. I tried my damnedest to never have to go to leave New York every summer. And so having something that had continuity, which a lot of work-study jobs didn't, um, between the school year and the summer was especially important. I could do the same job in July that I could in December. And that was th that was important. And it also just gave me a relationship to thinking about how the university economy structures everything in so many places and how the university continually reproduces this kind of economy, which is about the, the, the reproduction of flows of people. Even thinking about alcohol consumption, like how important is alcohol to the reproduction of thought in university? And not in the, just the reproduction of thought, but the re reproduction of the social relations that thought derives from. As someone who no longer drinks, like it, it, it's fascinating because I had to learn how to have a self differently because I had to learn how to be in relation to other people without the alibi for meeting them at the bar, without like that kind of, of lubrication, um, without that source of kind of collective collegiality. And let me tell you, it's weird. The labor economy that emerge adjacent to universities are so central to what universities are, even though they're not what they are proper. Right. And the ability to stay and leave, the ability to cycle through a place like 1020 seems so, that, that makes you one kind of person. Uh, being there year after year after year risks making you another kind of person. And I mean, let's think about, you know, obviously Morningside Heights is not your average college town, but like the town gown kind of thing is about people stopping by in a place they wouldn't want to be stuck in. And that's a lot of what universities are. The people who are gonna, who basically are having their rumspringa in <laughs> Ithaca or something, and the people who are just like in Ithaca. Yeah. One of the biggest questions ends up being, how do universities create these relationships with people that last over time and that keep on magnetizing people back and also keep on magnetizing capital back into universities? So the way that like identities get forged, I, I think a lot of people associate uh, 1020 much more with their university experience than they do the classes <laughs> that, that, that they took. And it's much more of what makes Columbia an institution um, live than a lot of the, the, the actual parts of the campus. And so how do you make sense of those kinds of economies that exist through institutions that really they might not even love. <laughs> I mean, like Columbia has, has a complex relationship to all those places that serve alcohol, like, you know, nearby campus. <laughs> yes, as, as they have a complex relationship to its surrounding geography in right. Morningside Heights uh, and Harlem, absolutely. too. Very mm -hmm. historically complex. I mean, Adrian, getting back to your question of like, why choose a service job over a campus job, too? Right. For me, it was a very dollars and cents thing. Right, like, for right. me, you just made a lot more money in the service yeah, economy. Yeah. And I think what Nick was saying about continuity and that job creating a stopgap between, like, just creating self-reliance self where you could right. pay your own bills, stay, like, work on your own time, that was really valuable for me, too. I guess I was more interested, I was I was wondering about about the question of, of prestige and how, how in a symbolic economy you function. I say this as someone who went to college in a dry borough, so... All our service jobs outside of the university were badly remunerated and kind of shitty. It was a lot of delivery, a lot of like, mm. you know, cutting pizzas. I mean, it was, it was okay, yeah. but like there was no way for us to, you know, pour drinks. You just don't look at, as cool working at Papa John's counter <laughs> as you do ser serving even the, you know, the simplest tecate, right? I'm just kind of wondering about that. Coolness was definitely a factor for me. I mean, I remember it affording me a, d a different kind of social currency of like friends coming in to see me. And that was a double, for me at least, that was a double-edged sword because on one hand, it made me feel popular. And on the other hand, there were no people... Tips. Well, yeah, sometimes there weren't, you know, like some friends, even really good friends, in fact, sometimes especially really good friends yeah. wouldn't feel like they had to tip me, even yeah. though my labor hadn't changed between them and the next right. person. Or sometimes they would tip me and 
there would just be a sort of vague grief to the moment when they just moved on to continue their conversation and ignored me. And I went back to be like, there was this moment of perforation of like, hi, I'm your friend. And then I go back to being this like service employee. You know what I mean? And like what you were saying, Nick, you didn't use this term, but there was like a real double, double consciousness to that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a, a powerful sense, even even to people that you you feel like you have a stable relationship. When you are in a service role, the question of what am I to you gets thrown into a little like it gets thrown into a little little bit of crisis. Especially not only because of how they they relate to you, but because your job is to make conversation with people. Your job is to keep on keep dialogue going, um, to keep drinks flowing, to build social life um and so yeah like when, when that's organized through these kinds of exchange it's tricky it's even stranger around universities because university students in the united states are trained to not see the vast armies of people that make their experience possible right and i mean i think it goes back to the, some of the ways that we can we conceive of college life as this moment that is going to be so singular the you know that adulthood is going to be replete with drudgery. Um, so you better get all of your fun in in, in the college years. It's this moment, like it, it is the Rumspringer type moment in the sense that it, it's this, this gap between adolescence and adulthood where acts, what you do, don't become identities. Um, and so like it's it, literally the idea is, is experimentation. What you do does not equal what you are. And like because of that, there, there's almost a structural sense of like you're not that accountable to what your relations are to other people. And there's an expectation and a commodification of the experience of being uh, unaccountable to other people that the institutions actually make part of the experience of what it means to be in college. And yet both of you are describing a situation where other people or your colleagues at Columbia were unable to grant you that same existence, right? The idea that you could be you know, working the door at uh, at ten twenty, and at the same time taking you know Gayatri Spivak's class at ten a.m. And that moment, they expected you to be what you were doing at that moment. That extraterritorial effect that campuses produce often is based on this idea that everyone else is what they do. Everyone else is just kind of fixed in place while you cycle through these incredibly complex and wonderful and important New York stories you're you're living through. The way that college economies are are set up is that the expectation of quote unquote the college experience this which is like I think it's kind of an existential lightness um, of where where like stuff is supposed to, you're supposed to work hard but also you're supposed to have have an expectation of fun and that can structure the expectation between students and non-student workers it can structure the, the expectation between students and students who are workers and it can structure the expectation between students and other students and i think so many of the codes of college sexuality are ab- about well expectations of fun and joy that often come at the cost of others and uh, like in, including other students and so the the that production of the student experience is so multifaceted and and complex it's it's a commodity but it's it's thingness is part of this incredible choreography uh in institutional choreography that comes from the official parts of the institution and all the other stuff that like happens uh, adjacent to it. And there are so many like different striations of power that occurred in this u- in university context and that occur in all university contexts, I think. And one of them is race, obviously, and one of them is gender, obviously. And I just think that the way that class fragments itself outward is so multivalent, you know, like when we're talking about how was I treated by other, by patrons who were other students, you know, a big determination in how they treated me was whether they ever had to work or not. 
you know, and the idea that there was this entire class of students. Well, there were a couple, I'm using the word class very loosely. Maybe I should choose another word here, but there's a group of students at places like Columbia and Stanford and these elite universities that not only have never worked by the time they get to college, right, but they're literally never going to have to work. They are never going to have to work to meet basic needs. So like, we'll call that group one. Group two is a group of like, upper middle class to wealthy students who are not so wealthy that they'll never have to work, but they may very well come from backgrounds so wealthy that they've never had a summer job or a during the school year job. Right. Right. And that I I certainly can't speak in statistics, but that group too loomed large in my 1020 experience (laughs) and really determined how I was going to be treated in terms of casual interaction and also in terms of just like tips, just financial mm-hmm. interactions. You know, the people who were likeliest to tip were the people who had ever held a job. Right, right. I am wondering, we all went to college around the same time when college cost, what about like a third of what it costs today? Or maybe it's half, maybe if we're I lucky. Think, so I think Columbia is around 75,000 now. And I think that when I was in college, by, by my fourth year, the total cost was between 40 and 45. What's interesting then is that on the one hand, we have the contingent of, of college students that come from backgrounds wealthy enough that they can just not never, that they cannot work through college. It's surprisingly, well, not surprising, but it's, it's actually, it actually remains fairly large. At the same time, that the group that has to hold a job at some point is becoming, if anything, tendentially larger, right? Because like college is becoming outlandishly expensive. And so it, I'm wondering to what extent this commodity that Nick was describing is becoming more and more of a phantasmatic object. It's more and more something that doesn't actually really exist, right? Like you, you get to pretend that you don't have these two sides, even though the majority of people kind of realistically, either they really have a really good credit rating and are just going to just wing it and hope they get into law school or something like that, or else they got to do something, right? And so I'm wondering if there's this kind of thing where where you sell, you know, these universities are, are selling students one kind of commodity when in fact they're consuming a totally different one. I mean, I think that there's going to be a point, and tuition and inflation scholars will will, will, will have something to say uh, about this question. I, I do think that there's a ceiling on how sustainable the kind of tw- tuition inflation that we've seen is, and what constitutes that ceiling is not is not price, but I think it does have to do with those questions about work. Also, the the imagined connection between college as experience, as as this kind of commodified experience, and as this preparation for the the, the world of work. Much of the, the the recent study suggests that college is not really a mechanism for upward social mobility for the majority of people, though incredibly importantly for people who are pretty much in the lowest socioeconomic echelons, it is a major force of upward upward economic mobility. But for generally for people who are who are in the middle classes, it's more of a way of staving off downward mobility uh than than anything else and that that's part of the reason that that like it's such an important mechanism for 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 producing debt because um you're you're basically trying to weather the the storm that is the absolute norm of our our neoliberal economy one of the reasons why I think a lot, a lot of folks have been trying to return to these questions about, uh, or the, these policy imaginations about the, these shifts in, in movement imaginations that about embracing the idea of, of free public higher education, because um, the game that we're playing is a losing one. Um, it, like it's it's ultimately a, a, a losing one, and you know, for those of us who are in the University of California system. I, like, the, when I started at UC Santa Cruz as a graduate student in 2005, you would hear boomers talk about, like, oh, yeah, I remember when when going here, I only had to pay $45 uh, a term. 
um, in order in order to go to school. Well, it's not like they didn't have a college experience. I think the the idea of of having this transitional experience to to adulthood where you experiment with ideas is great. I also think the idea that the world of work is so pulverizing that we create afterward that college has to be the place where all of those the, the, those moments of unaccountable, irresponsible fun have to be packed in because we know we know instinctively what's coming for us once we hit the world of work and so much of the experience gets commodified not because college offers something distinct but because of its promise of some sort of haven from the normative world of work in which we exist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. also i just want to flash back to the summer of 2005 and just like the whispers around the bar of like Nick's going to study with Angela Davis. <laughs> I didn't realize that people were actually whispering. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, probably no one was was whispering. There was very little whispering. But uh, <laughs> draw me a line between this work that you've always been doing and the work that you're doing now as a professor and organizer with Cops Off Campus in the UC yeah. system. So, I mean, th- th- there's a lot, a lot of things to say here. Policing on campus specifically. We have tons of statistics, tons of studies that that, that have... Um, investigated just how much more money we spend on policing than we did 50 years ago. We've increased spending even as crime has fall, fallen precipitously. So the amount that we spend on policing has nothing to do with, with, with how much crime there is, right? But those statistics are based on um, surveys of municipal policing um, expenditures. Campus police didn't really start until the late 1960s. And they, they, they started in response to many of the, the, the campus uprisings. A lot of campuses thought that by instituting their own police forces, they would have a, a less lethal, more community-attuned uh, p- police force um, that could serve their populations. That was the standard. That's the myth. That's the, the agrarian myth of, 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 of campus police. But now... You have an institution like the University of California, which has 1.4% of all of the enrolled students in the country, and just this last year spent $138 million on its police force. If that scaled, it would mean that university policing is probably a $9.8 billion business. I don't think that, that it scales like that, but I think that it's probably safe to assume that two to three billion dollars a year is how much universities spend on policing and that's on top of the other increases in policing the question i have is like if you're a college student at columbia we we, we saw our campus cops re, re, with relative frequency because the campus is small but on many campuses you never see police so the question is what are campus police doing when that's been such a major growth industry. I think that there have been some great, great investigations by, by scholars that are just starting. I completely forget his, his name at U- University of Chicago in economics, but th- there's a scholar in Chicago e- economics who did a survey of stop data <laughs> at University of Chicago and found out that um, in terms of tra- traffic stops, it was, I think, 70, 74, 75% of all people stopped are, are black in a neighborhood um, that's like 40% black. University of Chicago is like some minuscule <laughs> percentage black. So what campuses are doing, what campus police are doing is not necessarily anything that has anything directly to do with the people who are students on that campus. They are maintaining the areas around campus because campus police regularly have jurisdictions that extend well beyond campus limits as a racial divide, effectively, a race and class divide. So one of the important things to think think about here is that just in the the same decade where you have the one of the, the most important overall increases in people of color, um, especially black and brown people in universities, as you you see increasing numbers of women come to campus, not only do states largely begin to abandon the idea of universal free higher education, um, but they increase the the, the amount of what they spend on education, which is now coming from students as tuition, on policing. So not only is 
what what's what's been happening over the last fifty years like mean that tuition is more and more and more expensive and universities exist in an arms race with each other about how best to commodify the college experience, but that is also tracking on increasing amounts of social inequality while effectively taxing young people and their families, which are increasingly diverse, for going to college in the first place, even as college is not a mechanism of social mobility in the, in, in the same way. So much of college goes into the, the process of social reproduction. <laughs> it goes into the, the maintenance of vastly unequal r relationships of production as we're beginning to have conversations about how to structure education for more liberatory purposes, as we're beginning investigations into what we actually think the social function of police is. There's reasons to start asking it on universities. It's not because universities are exceptional. It's not because I think that we need cops off campus and not elsewhere. It's because universities are, they offer a lens onto the increasing investment in policing as a, an alternative to thinking about broader ways of imagining social equity, social equality, social liberation that were actually brought to the university by the same populations that are now being taxed increasingly by tuition that doesn't even serve the, the purpose of social mobility. Understanding cops in this way as representative of all these things, it's not just representative of the myriad problems that we already associated, but cops are representative of a regime increasingly invested in making college education a way of preserving an increasingly unequal society. And I, I think that that way of seeing police gives you a better lens. It helps to explain why so many people have been able to connect the dots in, okay, yes, we want the abolition of police, but we don't want it in a neoliberal austerity cost-cutting way. It's because police are the front line of the preservation of the forms of racialized and gendered social inequality that we're fighting at the same time. And so it's part of a larger project. It's fascinating. I'd never thought about this, about the university as kind of a prism through which you can see the actual function of policing in the United States, namely the management of, of social inequality and economic inequality. And I have to say that when I first read Angela Davis or you know Alex Vitale about like abolishing the police, I kept, you know, I went to Penn and I kept picturing the UPenn police department, which was that. I, I lived in Philadelphia Pretty, pretty far out in West Philadelphia at a time when when the Penn police decided to change its perimeter at which it would patrol. And you could just see exactly what it was there to do. And it was not about anything having happened to a student. It was not that the students had demanded it or that there had been any kind of... I mean, there, there were always incidents, but those incidents could happen just about anywhere. It's a big city, you know, stuff happens. No, what it was was actually largely people who wanted to move in and, and open shops. It was white people wanting to open shops in areas that, that had thriving african-american populations you know it was just it was an amazing thing to behold to sort of see this thing being done i mean i was a graduate student that was probably not the kind of person they had in mind necessarily but you know it was like this is done in your name but like you don't feel a damn bit different this is about something else right you are the you are the the site on which they've chosen to stake this and you're being here you become the the crack in the door through which this can now come right and i definitely you know there was definitely sort of a moment for me where it's like I, I should not have moved here right like I brought plague and destruction with me uh, because suddenly it, it created plausible deniability for the university to to move into that space and and indeed they did transform it entirely I mean they're the front line of gentrification in, in many ways like Google can't establish a police force Facebook can't establish a police force but Stanford can establish a police force and universities are among the very few private corporations in the country that are allowed to establish their own police forces. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Nick, I love how you led with such strong and statistically supported like economic and demographic arguments for getting cops off campus. But I'm also thinking about like the gender-based dimensions of this. So if the premise of cops on campus is yeah. to ostensibly 
to keep students safe, right? That's why they're supposed to be there. What do we as three feminist scholars suppose one of the most commonly committed crimes against college students is? Do college cops do anything to prevent the epidemic of campus rape? Not a chance. University police are a paradigmatic instance of getting away with talking out of both sides of your mouth because universities want to be able to handle conflict harm, violations that happen between students entirely on their own terms without any intervention of law enforcement because they see it as brand protection, which means that they have a, a, a way of actually dealing with harm that rightly has, has come under fire because it en ends up being um, incredibly difficult for people who claim to have undergone sexual assault. And I think that one of the hard things about it is that the idea that police would improve that situation is not anything that statistical numbers of survivors believe would be the case. So universities already have an abolitionist argument. The problem is that it's a capitalist abolitionist argument that's entirely about brand management. Now, bringing an abolitionist argument that actually takes harm seriously in some ways, universities have, have already made that argument in the, in the way that they do business. The, the point is that getting rid of police, the idea that police solve problems, and getting rid of the idea that universities' brand management is a way of solving problems actually opens up new space <laughs> to, to f figure out solutions that are thoroughgoing. Um, we already have a lot of models. Universities have a lot of really shitty restorative justice language that, that, that they tend to use, but there's still a, like a meaningful impulse for imagining processes of building justice differently. The problem is that, so for universities in their own class bubbles, there's already an insistence of co like on cops off campus. Um, think about what would happen if we didn't have, we, we had increasing resources that were not about reinforcing the idea that we solve problems with throwing lethal force at them. We could actually start thinking about justice on different terms, especially from the perspective of survivors. And I think that's, that's one way of actually just putting the problem in, 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 a, in, a, in a comprehensive manner. Mm. So Nick, for, for listeners who might be new to this area of thinking or wanting to expand their knowledge base in this thinking, can you recommend any resources for where they might learn more about the fight to get cops off campus on the UC campus and Bradley? What's really exciting about the movement is that it's got a sense of being a movement newly. I was really surprised to find on Twitter, it's like 50 to 60 organizations on different campuses who are working to get, get cops off campus. I have a list on my own Twitter, which is at TouchFaith. I am so like LiveJournal 2002, Depeche Mode person. Another great resource is we, we have uh, the, the faculty collective of the UC Cops Off Campus Coalition um, has a, a page called UCFTP on Twitter, at UCFTP. Um, great, great way to look at um, different things. And also for people who want to be able to study universities, I'm part of a, a larger collective effort through um, abolitionist university studies called the Cops Off Campus Research Project. We provide resources to people who want to figure out how much their unit universities spend on policing, what university police done. And it's for people who, you know, for, for student groups, but it's also for people, everyone who is a member of the public has an interest in this conversation because universities are nonprofit organizations. And so they don't pay taxes. So you have a stake in the conversation. If you want to study a university, you should, you should be able to study it. So if you go to abolition.university, um, you can get resources from the Cap Cops Off Campus Research Project. Amazing. It's almost like you're a professional teacher or organizer <laughs> or something. I don't even know. <laughs> the Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalpas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney.
The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion.